Spirit. So we're starting a long journey through the person Jesus Christ. And um, I've been thinking lots about Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. Uh, you know, he paints these frescoes on the ceiling. He's commissioned by the Pope, Pope Julius II. And between 1508 and 1512, this guy lies on his back painting these remarkable frescoes. The ceiling is divided into many panels, and they depict different scenes from the Bible. One of the most famous is the creation of Adam, where God reaches out to touch Adam's hand. He paints the ceiling while lying on his black back. He uh, employs this intricate technique called Bjorn Fresco, uh, painting directly onto wet plaster, so it requires precise timing and skill. Later in his life, he comes back to do the altar wall, and he paints the last judgment, the second coming of Christ. I've never been to the Sistine Chapel, but people who go in there say it's awe-inspiring. The sheer scale and the beauty of the artwork, the intricate details, the vibrant colors, the, um, the um, overall magnitude of the masterpiece, it evokes such a sense of wonder. It, the, the emotions portrayed by the figures, the depth of storytelling, it, it's a sight to behold. And, um, you know, had he painted themes of lesser importance, maybe there would have been a mismatch of the grandeur of the artwork. But he's capturing the full panorama of the biblical story from creation to the second coming of Christ. Interestingly, over the centuries, the frescoes deteriorated due to many factors, including candles, smoke, and humidity. And uh, in 1980 to uh, 1994, they restored the work. And... Um, and uh, why am I telling you all of this? Because today we are starting our own Sistine Chapel painting on the ceiling of Signal Church, in the ceiling of your mind. However long it takes us, we'll stop and we'll preach on other things, you know, this year and, you know. But however long it takes us, we want to paint every part of your mind with the multifaceted story and person of Jesus Christ. Each message will be another image contributing to another part. We, we cover it all, Jesus' pre-existence to Jesus as a baby, a child, a Jew, a miracle worker, a prophet, a friend, a savior, a Lord, uh, Jesus who comes back. I mean, there's a staggering amount to cover and we will go into it in detail, but also from time to time we'll pan back and we'll try to get the big picture. So for some of you, uh, maybe you're brand new to church, Maybe today's the first time you've ever been in church. You've, maybe you know nothing about Jesus. So it's an open canvas. But for many of us, we've been in church for many years, some of us many decades. So it's not like you don't know a lot about Jesus already. Interestingly, uh, the feeling before 1980 was that the, the coloration of this painting was a little bit um, bland. And when they... Uh, recovered it in the 1980s, they were struck by how beautiful the pale pinks, apple greens, vivid yellows, and sky blues were against this pearly gray. And people couldn't believe how much more beautiful it was than they even realized. And I believe that for those of you who think you've seen Jesus, you've known Jesus, there's gonna be a restorationist work happening. And you're gonna see him as if for the first time. So today we start the Sistine chapel and we're doing it little by little and and i'm reminded i told julie the story and julie pointed out that he painted onto wet paint he had to be now's the time they've done this part of the ceiling paint now 
we are believing that there will be a certain timing to each little part of the ceiling. Because each time we preach on Jesus, it will be in the context of spirit-drenched worship. Beyond fresco. Just what we need to know about Jesus now. Onto the wet paint of the Holy Spirit. And, and the way we're probably going to organize this is in different panels. So it's not one series, it'll be many series. We're still working it out, but there might be a panel about the beginnings, a panel about, you know, how do we know what we know about Jesus? Will the real Jesus stand up? A panel about Jesus as a person for people. A panel about the spirituality of Jesus that we can imitate. A panel about Jesus the miracle worker. Another panel about Jesus the teacher. Another panel about the titles of Jesus. We need a whole panel on the cross. Then another panel about Jesus being alive and divine. And then, of course, Jesus now. But let's start off in the most simple way we can possibly start this series. And I, Pilate says it best. Pontius Pilate, who crucifies Jesus. Let me read it, John 19. Once more, Pilate, sorry. So the title of today's message is, Here is the Man. <laughs> That's the title today. That's where we're going to start. Here is the man. And I get it from Pilate. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. And if you read your Bible or you watch The Passion of the Christ, you know what happens next. So I've got four things to tell you today. Firstly, Jesus uh, was a person like any person. Number two, Jesus is the most fascinating person of all time. Number three, Jesus is the most influential person of all time. Number four, Jesus is the, mo is the most polarizing person of all time. Let's start off with the first one. Jesus was a person like any person. Sure, uh, it's true that much of the world, the Christian world, believe Jesus is divine. They jump quickly to the fact that he, he rules over everything. Uh, and interestingly, uh, throughout the history of the church, there have been times where the church was so enamored with Christ as God that they could not really imagine that he was a human. In fact, there was a movement called Docetism, which means Docet, to appear. Jesus only appeared like a man, but if you look closely, he was hovering above the ground. <laughs> he, wasn't a, he wasn't really a man. And, and probably non-Christians who, by definition, don't believe Jesus was divine, they, they, they get this more quickly than Christians should. No, no, Jesus was really a man. He was a real man. He was like us in all points except for our sin. I mean, think of some of the data in the early stories of Luke's and Matthew's gospel that confirm his humanity. I mean, he was conceived. <laughs> he came out of his mom's body. He was born. He was a baby. In the Christmas story, the shepherds go looking for the child. And then Luke 2 tells us of the early, the later childhood of Jesus as a 12-year-old, and they call him a boy. And soon enough, he's described as a man. See, at first, no one called him Messiah or Son of God, but from the very beginning of the Gospels, everybody agrees he's a person. He calls himself a man. And when Satan attacks Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, uh, it, it, Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. He's talking about himself. You need more than bread, but Jesus, if he doesn't have bread, he's going to die. 
people could relate to him, of course. He ate, he, he, I mean, like them, he got hungry, he got thirsty, he got tired. He got hungry in John 4. He's on a trek with his disciples, and his disciples agree, Jesus is so famished, just leave him here. We'll go down to the town to get food for him. And it's there when he meets a woman, and she's got a bucket, and he goes, please, I'm thirsty. He's hungry, and he's thirsty. And then by the end of that story in John 4, which we'll eventually get to, she goes down to the village and says, come see a man. She thought he was a man. Of course, anybody hungry and, and, and thirsty, Jesus was a man and not only that, Pontius Pilate says here is the man. Caiaphas says that, that, that it's best that one man dies so that a revolution doesn't start up, referring to Jesus. Nobody calls him anybody, anything else. He's obviously and visibly a human being. For those who encountered him on earth, it never crossed anyone's mind to think of him in any other way. Even Paul, who never met Jesus, he said there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. See, as a man, he had a human mind. As a person, we're told that Jesus grew in wisdom. As a man, Jesus had human emotions. He could weep. He could be upset. He could, uh, he could rejoice. He could get angry. As a man, he had a human soul. He tells his closest friends, my soul is very sorrow sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. We're going to get to a message where we'll speak about the joy of Jesus. We also need to remember the Bible described him as a man of sorrows. He wasn't happy-go-lucky. He wasn't singing the Kuna Matata. He knew grief. As a man, he had a human spirit. On the cross, we're told that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, yielding up his spirit. As a man, he had a, a human body. That's what was crucified to the cross, a real man, more human than most of us can comprehend. So Jesus was a person like any other person. But number two, Jesus was the most fascinating person of all time. Of course, you could try to get me in a corner and argue there was this one person. Okay, so yeah, I'm a preacher. I'm allowed to say things in emphatic terms. But, but I guess if you got me in a corner, I'd still win the debate that Jesus is the most fascinating person of all time. At one point, he's so tired, he's busy, he's, he's on this, this mission, he's, he's preaching all over the place, he hears news that John, his cousin, has been beheaded, he's distraught, he's exhausted, he says to his disciples, come with me uh, to a quiet place where you can get some rest. Of course, he needs the rest. They climb on a boat, they go to the other side of the lake, and the crowd has heard about where he's going, and he arrives, he never gets the holiday he's looking for, <laughs> he's got to get right back to work. That happened to anyone this last season. Like, oh, if I could, between Christmas and New Year, I'm going to rest. I'm like, I'm as tired in January as I was the end of November. Jesus knows the feeling. He never got his rest. He's so tired that when he climbs in the boat, he falls asleep and water starts to wash into the boat because this huge storm whips up. Everybody's freaking out. Jesus is so exhausted, he doesn't even wake up. I mean, you don't get more human than that. He's also clearly, uh, you know, trusting in his father. <laughs> he's, he's relaxed, he sleeps deep. When you trust in God, it helps your sleep. Some of you really struggling with sleep. We need to pray for you. We, we need to pray for good night's sleep for you. We believe that God cares about our sleep. It's what you're doing one third of your life. 
It's not just interested in your waking hours. It's interested in your sleeping hours. Jesus is asleep until the disciples shake him so vigorously. Don't you care? We're going to die. Jesus is fully human. What happens next uh, freaks them out. He stands up and he talks to the storm like someone who speaks to their pet dog. The storm stops on the instant. And then we're told the disciples look at each other and say, what kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? And you could read the Gospels and you'll find yourself asking that question. He's, he's a man, but, but what kind of man is this? Most fascinating of men. Philip Yancey writes a book called um, The Jesus I Never Knew. And I just want to read the whole quote. It's, it's, it's a gorgeous quote. The more I studied Jesus, the more difficult it became to pigeonhole him. He, was, uh, he said little about the Roman occupation, the main topic of con conversation among his countrymen, and yet he took up a whip to drive petty profiteers from the Jewish temple. He urged obedience to the Mosaic law, which he in, reinterpreted, while ac acquiring the reputation as a lawbreaker. He could be stabbed by sympathy for a stranger, yet turn on his best friend with the flinty rebuke, get behind me, Satan. He had uh, uncompromising views on rich men and loose women, yet both types enjoyed his company. One day, miracles flowed out of him. The next uh, day, his power was blocked by people's lack of faith. One day, he talked in detail of the second coming. Another, he knew neither the day nor the hour. He fled from arrest at one point and he marched inexorably toward it at another. He spoke eloquently about peacemaking, then told his disciples to procure swords for self-defense. His extravagant claims about himself kept him at the center of controversy, but when he did something truly miraculously, he tended to hush it up. And then my favorite observation about Jesus by Walter Wink, he said, if Jesus had never have lived, we would not have been able to invent him. If Jesus had never lived, we would not have been able to invent him. Either there is a man that is as fascinating as Jesus, or there was a group of people who went into a room and conjured up the most remarkable creation in all imagination. <laughs> Two words one could never think of applying to the Jesus of the Gospels, boring and predictable. How is it then that the churches tamed such a character, has in Dorothy Sayers' words, very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, crucified him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. So in our journey, we're gonna keep on discovering how fascinating, extraordinary is Jesus. But let's pan out from there and let's look at him more from a historical perspective. So the next thing is that Jesus is the most influential person of all time. I mean, the verse that I read to you in John 19, Jesus stands beaten and bleeding before a crowd. Pilate half-heartedly tries to save him, but the crowd's rejection of him overrode the Roman governor's weak resistance. Surely Jesus' death would guarantee that, he's, that he would be wiped out from history. He got crucified, your name was blotted out from history. Thousands 
thousands of people were crucified. We don't know who they were. Yet remarkably, millennia later, the humble presence of this man towers above the skyline of human history. As one prominent social novelist of the early 20th century wrote, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in history. Another well-known historian chimes in. He says, as the centuries pass, the evidence is growing that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. Every day his name is spoken more than any other name, whether it's, you know, in admiration, you know, admiration and affection like we were singing his name this morning, or in absent-minded curses or denouncements by those who are ambivalent or antagonistic towards him. How do you get that famous? Through ruling an empire? He never did. I mean, Christians believe in the incarnation that the Son of God got, got to choose where and when he'd be born. He could have been born in Caesar's household. Said he chooses humble Mary. The, the armpit of the Roman Empire. This troublesome air, corner in the, in, in the Near East. And he doesn't even, doesn't even go to the main city, Jerusalem. He, he's born in Nazareth. The people in Jerusalem go, can anything good come from Nazareth? And then when, as a 30-year-old, he, he relocates. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He goes to Capernaum, also in kind of humble backwater Galilee. You could become famous by choosing rock stars as followers. If you know anything about Jesus' disciples, they're far from. You, you could maybe become famous in human history through decades of work, and yet Jesus lived in almost complete obscurity except for the brief period of his public ministry. According to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you just read those ones, it looks like his ministry lasts 18 months. When you read John's Gospel, you overlay it, you go, okay, probably three years. In three years, he made that dent on human history. You, you could become famous in the long term, by writing amazing stuff. And remarkably, Jesus wrote nothing. The only thing we know Jesus wrote was when he wrote some things in the sand, but we're not told what he wrote. You could become famous through powerful connections, and yet Jesus seems to avoid powerful connections. <laughs> the, the most powerful person he knows or seems to know is Joseph of Arimathea, who, you know, feels sorry for him and gets his body down from the cross and lets him use the tomb that was reserved for his family. You could become famous through your wealth, and yet as he's been crucified on the cross, the soldiers, the executioners are gambling for the only item he owns, his garment. I mean, Jesus never wrote a book, and yet he's the subject of the most famous book. Books that have been written about him more than any other person could fill libraries. Jesus never wrote a song, and yet there are tens and hundreds of thousands of songs about him. Jesus never traveled more than a few hundred kilometers from where he was born, and yet you find me a place on the planet where they don't know his name. There are some places, by the way, which is why missions exist. Jesus never marshaled an army, and yet he has outlived the very empire that sought to take him down, the Roman Empire. Jesus never had a child, and yet more children have been helped by his love of children than he, all 
than by any other name, the starting of schools and orphanages and the transformation of childcare. Jesus never had a medical license and yet his healing power lived on beyond him in the, his followers and more hospitals have been started in his name than through any other motivation. Jesus is the most influential person of all time. He's becoming more influential by the day. The world population grows by 1% a year. The Christian population grows by 2% a year. You just fast forward the numbers on that. And then finally, Jesus, the most polarizing person of all time. He's the most polarizing person of all time. By polarizing means like, it's hard to be neutral on this guy. I'm learning how to be neutral on all kinds of subjects. 2020, we all lost friends because we took sides on vaccines and masks and dumb things. It's okay, let's just agree to disagree on some things here, guys. But Jesus poses a challenge. (laughs) He says to his disciples, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And that question reverberates throughout history. You see, if Jesus was just nice, he wouldn't be polarizing. It's the things he said. Like Luke chapter 12, verse 8, I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. What kind of person says stuff like that? Was he right or was he wrong? If he was wrong, was he deluded or was he satanic? See, it makes it hard to have a lukewarm response to Jesus. There's no neutral response. I mean, look at the Gospels, and you'll see the the people of first century Palestine respond in the extremes. In the Gospels, anybody who met Jesus Christ only ever had one of three responses. Number one, they were either terrified and they wanted to run away, or they hated him and they wanted to kill him and stone him to death, or they worshipped him and got down on their knees and gave him everything. Who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? See, his unique life and claims invite extreme response. There are those that go all in. It's no secret that a third of the world's population gives some kind of allegiance to him, although we do know of nominalism, where a lot of people write on a document Christian, but actually he's not substantially anything in their lives. But Napoleon... Bonaparte said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no comparison. Alexander the Great, Caesar and I founded empires, but upon what? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions would die for him. His magnetic pull has, it seems, only become stronger today. By some estimates, 50 to 70,000 people will give their allegiance to him. I was listening to this um, debate between an atheist and a Christian, and um, the, 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 Christ, the Christian got asked, you know, why, do you, why did you become a Christian and why do you stay a Christian? And his answer intrigued me. He says, he says this, for a simple reason, I believe in the utter worshipability of Jesus. <laughs> it's odd to worship a human being, but if there's one man who turned out to be God becoming human, Jesus is candidate number one. To follow Christ is to abandon ourselves to his care and his leadership. Then, of course, there are those who don't believe Jesus was the son of God. Friedrich Nietzsche boasted, Jesus died too early. He himself would have revoked his own doctrine if he had reached my age. 
every non-Christian religion has to give some appraisal to this, this man. Many Jews believe, you know, he wasn't the Messiah, but he, he was a rabbi. And Muslims say he wasn't divine, but he was a prophet and he was born of a virgin. In the Quran, it says that he was born of a virgin. So you get some, um, some sectors of kind of skeptical Christianity where they go, no, no, he wasn't born of a virgin. And you've got, you've got Muslims more ready to believe that. Hinduism, you know, they believe he was a spiritual teacher or an avatar. And then, of course, you've got um, these cultic leaders who claim to be the return of Christ. Those who don't believe Jesus was the son of God. But the one thing that doesn't work is to stay neutral about him. When people are neutral about him, it tends to show that we haven't thought about this that much or we haven't got the information. Many in the church today treat Jesus as a cosmic butler, someone to call on when he needs, someone who merely enhances our lives and blesses our plans. And Julie stood up and said, Jesus is not the means to a life that works. Jesus is the end. Jesus is life. He's not an add-on. He is the essence. There is a danger in our church, like in every church, to sanitize our own Lord, to domesticate him, <laughs> to bring him down to size so that he fits snugly into our into our plans. I love C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. You, you know, Aslan represents Jesus. And um, someone tells one of the children in Chronicles of Narnia, he is good, but he is not safe. <laughs> you can't tame Jesus. You, you, you follow him, you're signing up for an adventure. You don't know where your life's gonna go. It's gonna it's going to go somewhere <laughs> if, you, if you orbit around Jesus Christ. You know, something off is off in the Western world today where Jesus is treated as a generic brand, a logo, a catchphrase, a pick-me-up. In, in our culture, many treat him as an interesting artifact of history, merely a, a good man, a, a sage with a vision for a better world. But look more closely, the kind of person who said the things Jesus said about himself is either hopelessly crazy or a, a liar or he is God in the flesh, who's coming rightly divided the world into BC and AD. Passivity and agnosticism are not a rational response. Either he is who he said he is or he isn't. Either worship him, flee from him, or kill him. But I don't know enough about Jesus. Well, I encourage you to come along to Signal. <laughs> We're rediscovering Jesus. Maybe you want to get a Bible. Maybe you read one, want to read the Gospels. And I say to my non-Christian friends, as you read it, just pray. Jesus, if you are real, please show me. Some people just don't care enough to look into him. This is as unwise as somebody knocking your door and saying, hey, I come from the bank. And I just want to tell you that someone died and bequeathed all their wealth to you. Okay, I would also be skeptical but I would at least investigate the matter. <laughs> and I wanna finish my message with this quote by a Scottish preacher from 180 years ago. Learn much of the Lord Jesus for every look at yourself. Take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. 
such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and for all, and, and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of, his, of the sweetness and the excellency of Christ and all that is in him. I'm going to ask you to stand up. Can we have the band on the stage? Proper Jesus church, you need to be a spirit church because the spirit is the means by which we encounter, access, communicate with Jesus, by which he speaks to us. Jesus is going to touch your life, is going to touch your life through the Holy Spirit. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, come Holy Spirit.